Father, we're here today because you rose your son from the grave, God, and gave us a reason to live. We live because you live, Father. Just thank you for everything that you've done for us. God, I pray that you would be with Scott this morning as he brings your word and just let the Holy Spirit flow through him and have him say what he needs to say today, that we would hear it, God, and respond. In your name I pray, amen. Good morning. I, can y'all hear me okay? Everybody in the back, can you hear me okay? Uh, I know it's a Baptist church because there are still folks who sit in the back. So I'm actually going to use, if it's okay with you, I'm going to use this podium over here instead of this. Uh, just gives me a little bit easier access to put my Bible and my notes on. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. If you've got a copy of God's Word with you, go ahead and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Now Titus is a a letter near the end of the New Testament and uh, it's a letter written by Paul to his co-worker in the faith who is appropriately named Titus. And so Titus is right before Hebrews, right after 2 Timothy. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, quickly introduce myself. I'm Scott Simmons and a uh, friend of John's and uh, Tony and all the other folks at, uh, at White Oak Baptist. I, uh, I'm actually an attorney by trade, and, and through the miraculous saving power of God, an attorney got saved. And so I, uh, I practiced law for five years, and then I was called into uh, the full-time ministry. I pastored a church in North Georgia called Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church for about three years. Uh, and then about a year ago, I transitioned back into the business world, uh, and I, I own a, uh, an insurance agency now. So sort of a diverse background, but uh, it sort of reminds me of this story. Uh, there, was a, there was an old pastor. I've uh, been, been pastoring a church faithfully for about 40 or 50 years, and he knew his time was coming to an end. He was just about to pass away, so he's, he's at his home. He's resting peacefully in, in his bed, waiting for the Lord to call him home. And he grabs his wife, and he says, uh, will you please call my insurance agent and my lawyer? And both of these men were, were deacons in his church, and he, and he uh, has them call. His wife calls them and says, Hey, uh, the pastor would like for you to come over to our house. He'd like to spend his final few moments with the two of you. And so the, the pastor or the, the lawyer and the insurance agent are, are obviously very honored and excited. And so they, they go together uh, and they get in the car and they're driving over to the pastor's house. And they're thinking, what, what sort of wisdom is our pastor going to share with us in his last remaining moments? And so they get there and, and they walk in and, and he's sitting or he's laying in his bed. And he weakly calls them in and has one of them sit on his left side, the other one sit on his right side. And, and as soon as these men sit down, he sort of has a very peaceful expression on his face and just takes a deep breath and you can tell he's really at peace with the situation. And after about 30 minutes of silence, the two men are looking at one another thinking, is the pastor going to say anything? And the lawyer looks at him and he says, Pastor, why did you call us here today? What, what sort of wisdom do you want to leave with us? And the pastor, with sort of all the energy he could muster, he said, Son, my whole life, I've spent my entire uh, life trying to live just like Jesus. And I thought if I'm going to die, I want to die just the way that Jesus did with the two biggest crooks I know on either side of me. (laughs) So, so, all that to say, you're stuck with me today. A pastor, a lawyer, and an insurance agent. So, 
Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be in God's Word today. I've, I've uh, got my notes on the back of, of your order of worship, and if you want to follow along and, and take notes as I, as I walk through the text. But we're going to walk through Titus chapter 2 this morning. It's, it's a letter from Paul to Titus. Titus is the pastor uh, in Crete, which is a small island off of the coast of Greece. And Paul is writing specifically to Titus to tell him to number one, to teach sound doctrine, and then to model that sound doctrine for the church. And so we're going to take a look this morning and see exactly what that looks like in Titus chapter 2 in this letter. So if you are physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand out of honor and reverence for the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to begin in verse 1 of Titus 2, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, But as for you, Titus... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Father, may the preaching and the teaching of your word accomplish the purpose, as the prophet Isaiah says, for which it was sent out. God, have your way this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're following along on your outline this morning, there's There's one main overarching theme that encompasses Titus 2. So when you you take Titus 2 and you condense it into one summary statement, here's the main idea. Teaching and living sound doctrine brings harmony to God's church. Teaching and living sound doctrine brings harmony to God's church. While crossing the Atlantic on a cruise ship, Billy Burke, the famous actress of a couple of generations ago, noticed that the gentleman at the table next to her was suffering from a terrible cold. Uh, Sympathetically, she looked at the man and she said to him, "Are, are you uncomfortable? And the man, who was clearly very sick, just nodded and said, yes, I'm feeling terrible. 
Well, Miss Burke had a plan. She said, I'll, I'll tell you what to do. You need to go back to your room, drink lots of orange juice, uh, take a couple of aspirin, cover yourself with all the blankets that you can find in your room. You need to sweat the cold out. You know, I know what I'm talking about. I'm Billy Burke from Hollywood. The man smiled at her in return and introduced himself and said, Miss Burke, thank you so much for your suggestion. I'm Dr. Mayo from the Mayo Clinic. You know, the only thing that's worse than an expert is someone who thinks they're an expert and actually is not. In fact, there's been studies that have come out to talk about how you become an expert. And the Harvard Business Review said that to people who have never reached an elite level in a particular field, it may appear that excellence is simply the result of practicing for years or even decades. However, living in a cave alone does not make you a geologist. Not all practice makes perfect. You need a particular kind of practice, deliberate practice, to develop expertise. When most people practice, they focus on the things they already know how to do. Deliberate practice is different. It entails considerable, specific, and sustained efforts to do something you can't do well or even can't do at all. It is only by working at what you cannot do that you turn into the expert you want to become. And, and, and as we've seen this morning from, from Billy Burke, she was not an expert in the medical field, although she claimed to be. And I believe that the same thing is applicable to us in our faith. Oftentimes, we claim to be an expert in our faith when in reality, we have no business talking the way that we do. I'm convinced that in the local church, that there are individuals who have been believers for 20, 30, 40, perhaps even 50 years who are still as immature in their faith as they were the day that they gave their life to Jesus Christ. And yet, oftentimes we act as if we are an expert in that field. Oftentimes we will view baptism as the finish line of our faith. We just need to get folks saved and get them baptized. When in reality, baptism is the starting line of our faith. So this morning, as we're looking through this letter, I want us to see that ultimately, understanding sound doctrine is one thing, but then living out that doctrine is what allows us to actually have an eternal kingdom impact for the Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing doctrine is one thing, living out doctrine is another. All right, so the first thing that we've got to see this morning is that in beginning chapter 2 is that Paul is exhorting Titus to teach sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. If that's, if that's on the, uh, your, your outline, Paul is exhorting Titus to teach sound doctrine. So before we, we get to how we live out our faith, we actually do have to have some sort of understanding of what sound doctrine is. Take a look at verse 1. But as for you, this is Paul speaking to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. All right, now hold your spot there at the beginning of chapter 2 and look at the last verse of chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 verse 16. Speaking about the, the Cretans, those who were in Titus's church, says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, how many of y'all have been in a church where that can describe some of the people in the church, right? We've all been in situations like that. I am convinced that there are lots of people who don't go to church anymore because they've been to church. 
People who, who said, I'll never go back there because of the way that I was treated at church. That's what was pilfering and infiltrating this church at Crete. And we see here at the end of chapter 1, the Cretans were, frankly, bad news. If you think about the reputation of Las Vegas, that's sort of the reputation that the Cretans had. They were swindlers. They were gamblers. They were folks who, who had no moral compass. And unfortunately, many of those folks were professing Christ and coming into the church, and yet their behavior wasn't changing. They, they had made a profession of faith, and yet their actions still looked like those of the world. They were a long way from expert designation. But Titus, as the pastor of the church, had to be ahead of the curve. Look at the beginning of verse uh, chapter 2. But as for you, there's a clear distinction between the way Titus is to behave and the way that the others were behaving. Paul instructs Titus to rise above the illicit behavior of those in the church. He was to serve as a model for the believers in the way that he taught and in the way that he lived. Specifically, Paul commands him here to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's saying, Titus, you've got to teach the truth no matter the cost. Now, we live in a society where we've come to the point where we think truth is relative. We, we've got confusion about gender roles. We've got confusion about uh, human sexuality. We've got confusion about all sorts of things. And people are saying, well, this is the truth because this is what I believe. And that's simply not the case. Listen, it doesn't matter what someone's opinion about something is. The only thing that we know that is absolute truth is the authority of God's word. And so... We are supposed to look and, and learn and believe and live out sound doctrine. The only compass that we use is the authority of God's holy word. Paul is instructing Titus to avoid the tendency of, of following the crowd. Now, when I, when I was a teenager, uh, I went through a rough spell uh, in high school. And I had this tendency to sort of follow the crowd, as many teenagers often will do. In fact, I would... Uh, this I had a conversation with my mom around spring break, my junior or senior year of high school, and, and here's how the conversation would go. Mom, can, can I go to the beach with my friends on spring break? And my mom would say, oh, no, that's a terrible idea. You won't be supervised. You know, that, that's, you, you don't need to be going to the beach by yourself. And I said, here's, how many of you parents have heard this? But mom, everyone's going to the beach. And here's what my mom's logic was. Scott, if everyone jumped off the Walnut Street Bridge, would you do that too? Now, as parents, we've all had these sort of moments, right? Now, looking back, I realized that my mother's logic was terrible. Lots of people go to the beach. I don't know anyone who's jumped off the Walnut Street Bridge. <laughs> but the point is this, that we are not to simply follow the crowd. The crowd will tell you, that you can do whatever you want and God will forgive you. And that is true. But there will also be judgment. The crowd will tell you that there are many different ways to heaven. And that's simply not true. The crowd will tell you that you can live however you want and it's okay. And that's simply not true. We have been called to be different to look different than the crowd. Titus is not to follow the crowd. He is to lead in the right direction even if no one is following. And how does he lead? It says he teaches what accords with sound 
doctrine. Now, the word sound here can also be translated as healthy teaching. Titus, if you teach these things, it will be good for the health of the church. Now, let, let's be honest with ourselves. All right. How many of you know how to lose weight? All right. Every hand in the room should go up here. All right. how, how do we lose weight? Some, somebody call it out. How do we lose weight? Exercise, right? What else? We eat healthy and we exercise, all right? Everyone in this room knows that's how you lose weight. Now, knowing the truth and doing the truth are much more difficult proposition, right? My wife and I love to watch The Biggest Loser. Anybody watch that show, The Biggest Loser? It's a show where, where people are trying to go on and, and they try to lose as much weight as possible. And, and my wife and I, was particularly when we were first married, we would watch The Biggest Loser every week and we would go and we would fix a big bowl of ice cream and then sit on the couch and eat it. We knew what we were supposed to be doing, but we weren't doing it. And it's the same way in our faith. We know what we need to do to grow in our faith. We know that we need to spend time in God's Word. We know that we need to be down on our knees in prayer. We know that we have lost friends and neighbors who need to hear the good news about Jesus, and we just don't do it. The reason they're called spiritual disciplines is because they're difficult. Discipline is, is not something that's easy. Discipline is something that takes work, that takes practice, that takes habit. Just as it's sometimes difficult to not eat that oatmeal cream pie or to, to sleep, you'd rather sleep in than get up and go to the gym, it's the same way in our faith. It's easier not to live a life that accords with sound doctrine. And what Paul is saying here, Titus, you've got to teach these things so that the people will know exactly what they are to do. We know we need to be more devoted to him. We know we need to be more committed to his church. We know we need to read our Bible, but simply, for most of us, we just don't care. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. All right, so teaching good doctrine, we've seen that that's important. But standing alone, teaching good doctrine is not enough. So the, so the next uh, step in the progression is to model sound doctrine, to model sound doctrine. Write that down. Let's pick up in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All right, so beginning in verse 2, Paul begins to provide practical advice to a variety of different groups within the church. One thing I love about the local church, my family and I worship at Red Bank Baptist, and there are great-grandparents down to babies and toddlers in that church, 
multiple generations of believers who worship together in harmony and in unity. And God's got it, really got his hand on that church right now where, where there, is, there is unity among the body, there's harmony among the people, uh, there's, uh, there's no uh, distinct gap between the older folks in the church and the younger folks in the church. But everyone's working towards a common purpose, and that is the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The thing I love about the church is that it is diverse. It is diverse in age. It is diverse in uh, race. It is diverse in uh, viewpoint. It is diverse in all sorts of different areas. And what I love about that is it's a picture of heaven. When we get to heaven, we will be with believers from every tongue and tribe and nation. In fact, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 promises this, that the gospel will be proclaimed to every nation and then the end will come. So when we get to heaven, it's not going to be middle class America. And I think that's a good thing. But there will be our brothers and sisters from Africa and from Asia and from South America and from Europe, all claiming the greatness of God in our native tongue. And so one of the things that, I, that I've seen that, that has really just, just crawled under my skin as, as a pastor and a preacher of God's word, particularly in the South and particularly in America, is that oftentimes we will equate being a member of a political party with being a believer or being a Southerner and being an American as being a believer. And listen, we have more in common with our Nigerian brother or sister who's living under a communist regime than we do with our neighbor across the street who looks just like us who doesn't know Jesus. We are called to model out sound doctrine and to be diverse in our faith. We don't all look the same, we don't all act the same, but we all call upon the same name of Jesus Christ. So, in this instance... Paul is talking to various believers in the church, and he starts by talking to older believers. To older believers, he says this, older believers model selflessness. Older believers model selflessness. Now, let's be honest, these instructions really shouldn't have been necessary, but the older believers at Crete were not a picture of piety. And so Paul is addressing the church first by age and then by gender. First, to the older men, here's what he says, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Essentially, older men are to display a vibrant and mature faith. How how many of you, raise your hand if you help me out here. How many of you have been a believer for 50 years or more? All right. We have some older saints in the room who've who've been uh, following Jesus for more than 50 years. What a testimony that is. I've had friends say to me, well, I wish I had the sort of uh, rags to riches testimony where I was a drug addict and then I gave my life to Christ. But instead, my testimony is just boring. I gave my life to to Jesus as a kid and I've been following him ever, ever since. And I say, no, that's not boring. Praise God for that testimony. Because you've had more years to be able to walk steadfastly in the faith. Older believers who have been believers for a long time should be displaying maturity and should be leading and guiding those who are younger than them in the church. It says here that they are to be sober-minded. Okay, So older men in the church shouldn't be known as a drunk. They should be self-controlled. 
Uh, This means that they don't get angry when something doesn't go their way. It says they should be sound in love. Now, as men in particular, <clears throat> we don't like to talk about our feelings. Uh, my, my wife will always say, you, you, I want you to dive deep with me. I want you to scuba dive with me. And I'm sitting there putting my fingers in there and you're saying, no, please, please don't make me talk about my feelings. Men, we don't like to do that. Instead, we, we act like it attacks our masculinity. Oh, well, I, I don't need to talk about those sorts of things. You know who the, the one person in the Bible who talked about love and his feelings more than anybody else was? It was Jesus. It's a real man who's not afraid to talk about his feelings. It's a real man who's not afraid to take a younger brother and say, listen, I love you, and I want to invest in your life. Older men should be loving. They should be patient with others, particularly those who are younger. And they also should be willing to serve and invest in the church. Listen, I believe retired men are the greatest untapped resource for the kingdom of God. All right, younger men have, have families, they've got jobs, they've got uh, all sorts of responsibilities, raising children. Older men who are retired have time on their hands to be able to serve God's church. So older men, keep that in mind. They should be sound in steadfastness. Older men should not be swayed by the wind in their faith. They've weathered tough times. They've seen difficult things. They've grown stronger and are molded by past experiences. And I'll be honest, having pastored a a decent-sized church, I've seen some men who embody these characteristics some men who, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, some men who are willing to invest in younger guys in the church, some men who are willing to lead and make tough decisions even when it wasn't popular, and then I've seen some other guys who were jerks. Older men who, who wanted to make decisions that would benefit their power play in the church. Older men who wanted to, to uh, who were immature and simply had pet projects that they cared about at the expense of the gospel. Which older men are you? All right, so what about the women? All right, look at verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. All right, let me play psychologist for a moment. I am not a woman, all right? I know, I think as you look at me, it's clear to tell I am not a woman. That said, I am married to one, and I have two daughters, ages seven and three, and I have no idea what's in their brains. So I'm surrounded by women at my house, okay? Now, we do have a cat who's a boy, but he's a cat, and so let's be honest, no one likes a cat, right? So I've got a wife and two daughters, And I have no idea what goes on in their complex minds. But I will say this. Men have a variety of struggles. You know, lust, ambition, dealings with money. Men have these things that they typically will struggle with. The one thing that I have found, particularly when I was pastoring, the one thing that I found that women struggle with more than anything else is gossip and slander. And in the church, oftentimes it's worse than anywhere else. 
It's just something that women naturally struggle with. It's something that, that they tie oftentimes to their self-worth is the ability to say, well, my life's not as, as bad as, as that one, or, or I'm doing better than they are. Uh, a group of my pastor friends recently got together over dinner, and during their conversation, one of the pastors said to the other, you know, we've had a great time of revival in our church. I've had a group of individuals who've been, who've been coming to my office and meeting with me, and they've been confessing sin, and the Lord's really freed them of this sin, and, and we've just seen great revival in the church. And so I thought as pastors, we get together, and we don't really have anyone else to talk to. We ought to do the same thing. We ought to confess our sins one to another. And so I'll go first. I'll be honest. I, I love to drink beer. And the second one says, well, okay, if we're going to do this, we'll do this. All right, I, I, have, I like to smoke cigars almost every night. And then the third one looks and says, well, you know what, guys, Th this is good for the soul. So I I've got a gambling problem, and I'm glad I confessed that to you. And then they look at the fourth pastor, who hasn't really said anything yet, and they said, well, what about you? What, what's your vice? And he said, fellas, I've got a gossip problem, and I can't wait to leave this dinner and go tell everyone what we've been talking about. <laughs> gossip and slander can destroy a church. Destroy it. And it's one of those things that I've seen that just plays into the, uh, the, the, the feelings and the emotions of women more than, more than others. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13 says that whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Uh, Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Ultimately, I believe that gossip is a self-worth issue. You don't find enough worth in yourself, and so you attack others through backbiting. When you gossip, it shows a lack of self-worth. When you should be seeking your worth, not in anything that you've done, you should be seeking your worth in Jesus Christ alone. Gossip can destroy a church. Look at the role that older women should play, verses 4 and 5. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, uh, to the older ladies in the church. Your role is to teach younger women how to love Jesus and how to serve as a godly wife and mother. Uh, moms, uh, the most important disciples that you have are those children in your home that are going to follow and model and watch what you do. Older ladies, your role is to train younger women in godliness and younger women, you are to look to these older ladies as an example of what it looks like to be a godly woman. And then ultimately, when women, either old or young, behave in such a manner, what happens? It says here, the word of God is not reviled. Godly living prevents God's word from suffering disrepute. All right, what about younger believers? Younger believers model patience. Younger believers model patience. Look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Okay, I'm a millennial. If you've been following sort of demographic studies at all, you've heard a lot of talk about millennials. Millennials are those born between 1980 and 2000, all right? So I'm suspecting y'all are, are millennials as well. I'm going to be honest. My generation's the worst, all right? We're terrible at a lot of different things. We're entitled. We think that uh, the world should be handed to us when we haven't done anything. 
Um, we have a whole different view about work. And so there are some good things that millennials are involved in, but overwhelmingly there's a lot of negatives that encompass my generation. Here's what a, a study recently said from Time Magazine. 40% of millennials believe they should be promoted every two years regardless of job performance. Okay. They are fame-obsessed. Three times as many middle school girls want to grow up to be a personal assistant to a famous person than to be a U.S. senator. Four times as many would pick the assistant job over CEO of a major corporation. They are so convinced of their own greatness that the guiding morality of 60% of millennials in any situation is that they will simply, quote, be able to feel what's right. And then we wonder why our world looks the way it does. Uh, why, why are these millennials looking the way that they are? Part of it is self-inflicted, but part of it is a generation of parents that gave out participation trophies when their kids didn't do anything. Uh, part of it is a generation of parents that thought it was more important to have their kids in travel baseball and softball than to be in church on Sunday mornings. Sure, millennials have a lot of blame to take, but that starts in the home. And in the same way, I've got little girls. I had the privilege and honor of baptizing my, my oldest daughter last year and leading her to Christ. And it is not the church's responsibility to lead my children to Christ. It is my responsibility as the father and my wife's responsibility to disciple them. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, we cannot wait and simply rely on the church to teach our kids about Jesus. We have to teach what accords with sound doctrine and then model that doctrine to our children and our grandchildren. Otherwise, the gospel gets lost. Finally, elders. Elders model character. Elders model character. Paul's focusing here on, on Titus himself, exhorting him to lead the way in example with his behavior. Now, when I say elders, I'm not referring to older folks, I'm referring to, to pastors. The word pastor or elder is the same term used interchangeably throughout Scripture. So Paul here is speaking to church leaders in particular. Uh, those who are serving as deacons in the church could also be held to the same high standard. Look at verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, church leader, you behave in such a manner that you cannot give your opponent a reason to attack you. Show the church how to act with your own behavior. When you teach, be prepared. When you lead, be prepared. And if you are attacked, shrug it off, knowing that you are being obedient to the Lord's calling upon your life. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 16 says, To have a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, ultimately, whether you are a pastor, a deacon, uh, a Sunday school teacher, a worship leader, a mother, a father, a son, a grandfather, an older person in the church, a younger person in the church, how you behave, good or bad, reflects on who you are and who you belong to. 
If we profess to call Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord, and yet our behavior looks something differently, it is a poor reflection on who we are and whose we are. My mother used to say this to me. Remember, Scott, who you are, but also remember whose you are. She would say this to me all the time. And what she was saying was, when you leave the house, yes, you are Scott Simmons, but you are a member of the Simmons household, and remember whose you are. John and the youth are away at student life camp this week, and I have extremely fond memories of going to student camp when I was in the student ministry at Red Bank Baptist. And we went to a camp over in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, my senior year. And my mother, before we left, said, remember who you are and remember whose you are. She would always say that to me because she had no idea what I would end up doing. So we get to student camp, and I was that kid in high school that if you dared him to do something, it didn't matter what it was, I would do it. All right, we all know that guy, right? That was me. That was me. Is that you too? All right. Well, t- well Mom, take heart about the story you're about to hear. So we went to student camp. The first night we were there, we had a wonderful night of worship. We had this, this great time where we were all sharing with one another. And then we got back to the room and had an hour or so to kill before it was bedtime. And somebody goes, hey, Scott, I bet you won't drink a bottle of toilet water. And I said, how much are you willing to pay me? And all of a sudden, the money just starts flowing in. My youth pastor even kicked in a 20. And I drank a bottle of toilet water. Now listen, listen, I I am not proud of this. Although it was an impressive feat. I got home, and my mom found out. And she took my money. And here's what she said to me. She said, remember who you are and remember whose you are. Believer, when you go into your workplace, when you go into your school, when you're in the drive-thru window at the fast food place, when you're stuck in traffic, when something doesn't go your way, when you have an argument with your spouse, when you're disciplining your children, remember who you are in Christ and remember whose you are. Everything that you do is a reflection, sure, of your last name, but more importantly, everything that you do is a reflection of who you are as a sinner saved by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I am convinced that the reason that we are having struggles leading others to Christ is because we have so many people who profess and claim to be Christ followers who look no different than anyone else. The single, to quote this great song from DC Talk in the 90s, the single greatest cause of atheism are Christians who profess Jesus Christ with their mouth and then do not look like him in action at all. Our faith is to be more than simply a profession. Our faith is to be the way that we act. It's to be the way that we love those who are in need. It's to be the way that we are are, are living our lives for the sake of the gospel. It's the way that we interact with people on social media. I I don't get political in the pulpit. All right, it's just not my thing, all right, because it ends up dividing people more than it does anything else. 
But there are some issues that we are facing in our country today that are not political issues. They are human dignity issues. And I don't, I don't, I don't care whose policies are in place or, or what, what things have happened between you know, the Obama administration or the Trump administration. I don't really care. I do know, though, that as believers, we are to value the sanctity of human life in whatever situation that is whether that is abortion, whether that is immigration, whether that is whatever other topic you want to bring up. Folks, let's not be so tied to a political conviction that we lose what Jesus Christ would have done along the way. We are to be followers of Jesus first, Americans second, and members of a political party third. Ultimately, remember who you are and remember whose you are. Finally, Let's finish this text. None of this is possible without Jesus, the author of sound doctrine. Jesus, the author of sound doctrine. I was talking to John this week, and uh, I said to him, you know, what time do you, uh, what time do y'all usually get out? And he said, oh, usually around 11.15 or so. I said, how long do you preach? Because I'm always sensitive to, to that when I'm preaching to another church. You know, I don't want to preach twice as long as the pastor does or twice as short as the pastor usually does. And it reminded me of my first, uh, first time I went to preach uh, at a church uh, up on Signal Mountain. And uh, I was talking to the chairman of the deacons, and I said, hey, how long does the pastor usually preach? And he said, listen, you can preach as long as you want, but the people leave at 12. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Oh, this text is so good, y'all. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Uh, the one thing I want us to understand here is that when the grace of God appeared, as it says in verse 11, he appeared in the form of a man named Jesus Christ. And when he came, he came with the offer of salvation to all who will call upon his name. You see, see here it says that he brings salvation for all people. That does not mean that all people will be saved. It simply does not mean that. We are not uh, believers in universalism. But we do believe that anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation will be saved. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the only way to salvation is Jesus Christ. And when you think about other religions, you think about Islam, or you think about uh, Buddhism, or you think about Hinduism, or you think about all these other different world religions, right, and then you imagine uh, that God is up on top of a mountain, and you're ultimately, at the end of your life, you're trying to be up with God on top of that mountain. Now, now think about all these other religions. What, what do you have to do to get to the top of the mountain? All right, you've got to behave a certain way. You've got to, you've got to uh, do the right thing. You've got to pray five times a day and face this way, or or you've got to do good works for people. And as you do that, you sort of make a journey along the mountain, and you're winding up the mountain. And finally, you're going to get to the top. 
And we spend our whole lives in these other religions doing everything we can to reach the top of the mountain so that God will approve of us. Now, think about Christianity. Christianity is nothing like those other religions. Instead, God is on the mountain, and instead what he does, he comes off the top of the mountain, and he comes down to the bottom, and then he takes you back up based on nothing that you have done, but based on solely everything that Jesus Christ has done. You don't have to fight and crawl and scratch your way to the top of the mountain to be seen in God's eyes as a redeemed sinner. You simply have to trust and believe. And the good news is that offer of salvation is available for anyone within the sound of my voice today, within the sound of many other pastors and many other churches today, and within the sound of your voice as you go across the street to tell your neighbor. Now, there's sort of a dichotomy here, right? Okay, well, you're saying, you're saying, Pastor, we're supposed to live lives that model godliness on one hand, but we don't have to model godliness to be saved, right? And both of those statements are true. They are not mutually exclusive. But when you are a sinner who has been saved by the grace of God, your life cannot help but show the outflow of that in the way that you act. I used to say this almost every week when I was preaching. I met Jesus in 1995, and I have never gotten over it. If you think back to the day that you met Jesus Christ, I pray that you have never gotten over that. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I can't think of that day. I don't know when I met Jesus and couldn't get over it. If that's you today, maybe you don't have anything to get over. Listen, you're not a believer because you've been a member of a church for 50 years. You're not a believer because you got baptized. You're a believer because you recognize that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. And you surrendered your will to him. That's it. That's it. And though Jesus came the first time to save, the second time he's coming, it's going to look a lot different. He's coming to rule. Look at verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope. <clears throat> the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we live our lives on this earth, we are to live in anticipation of Jesus' return. So the question I have for you, believer, is are you living for now or are you living for eternity? When you have certainty about your future, that is, you know that you're going to be in heaven when you die. When you have certainty about your future, it should bring constancy to your present. When you have certainty about your future, it should bring constancy to your present. But are we anxiously anticipating the greatness that is to come or are we more concerned about the things of the current day? A couple of years ago, we took a family vacation to Disney World. Uh, so my, my, my daughter, who's now seven, she was four at the time, we, uh, we were going to go to the beach for a couple of days, and then we were going to surprise her, and we weren't going to tell her, but then we were going to go to Disney World. So we spent a couple of days at the beach, and while we were at the beach, uh, as most beach people do, they, they will go to uh, some little junk store, you know, and buy beach souvenirs. Anybody ever been to a store called Alvin's Island? Anybody ever been there before? I see a few heads nodding. Okay, Alvin's Island is like where uh, Gatlinburg meets the beach, you know, meets airbrush t-shirts and all these sorts of things, right? 
So we went there, and my four-year-old daughter just fell in love with the place, all right? She's finding live crabs and uh, little trinkets, and, you know, I, I spent a, a fortune on things that are probably now in the trash can, right? So we go to Alvin's Island, and she just loves Alvin's Island. So then we've been at the beach for three days. It's the morning of. We're going to get up. We're going to drive to Disney World. We get her up, and we say, sweetheart, guess where we're going today? And she goes, Alvin's Island? And we said, no, 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 sweetie, no, no, no. We're going to Disney World today. And all of a sudden, a tear starts to run down her cheek and her lip is quivering. And we're thinking, oh, man, father of the year. She's so overjoyed. She's so overcome with emotion because she knows we're going to Disney World. And she looks at me and she cries and she says, but I want to go to Alvin's Island. believer. What a perfect picture of our lives. Heaven and the splendor and the majesty and the glory of that eternity is waiting on us. And we want to go to Alvin's Island. We want to catch the newest show on Netflix or we, we live and die by whether or not the Tennessee football team wins on a Saturday. Or we're more concerned about whether our kid's going to be starting on the football team or what are we having for dinner or what are the deadlines that I've got to meet and all through that we're missing the splendor and the majesty and the greatness of what is awaiting us Disney World for eternity don't get caught in the present and miss what you're living for Peter makes it clear that we are simply traveling through this earth that it is not our home that we are wanderers, that we are sojourners on our way to a better place that our Lord Jesus has individually prepared for every one of us who have faith and trust in him. Look at this text, verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself up for you so you could be saved. You are a pride, prized possession of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with a story this morning. I'm going I'm to ask Isaac and his team to come up and just begin playing something softly in the background as we prepare for our time of response. There was a pastor who preached a sermon on Sunday morning and the next day he was out and about and he was at the grocery store and just went in to pick up a few things. He was in a massive hurry. He had an appointment that he had to get to and he was already running late. So the pastor quickly goes through the checkout line and he gets to the checkout line and there's this, this young girl, a teenager, who was working behind the register and she handed him his change and he said thank you and he ran out the door because he was late to his next appointment. And as he got into his car, he began to put the change into his wallet, and he noticed that the cashier had given him too much change back, and he thought to himself, oh no, what am I going to do? I'm in a hurry. I, I, I don't want to be late, but I also know that the right thing to do is to walk back in there and make this right. So he, even though he was late, the pastor gets out of the car, he approaches the cashier, and he looks at her, and he tells her, I, I am so sorry but it looks like you have, may have given me too much change by accident. 
that lady looked at him and with a, a big tear rolling down her cheek, she said to him, no, sir, I did that on purpose. You see, I, I came to your church Sunday and I sat on the back row. You preached about honesty and how important it is to be honest as a Christian. I gave you too much change so I could see if you really meant it. Christian, people are watching you. If you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are held to a different standard. And we should be. When you go to work tomorrow, or when you go to school, or when you go to the grocery store, wherever it is that you go, people are going to look at you and say, you know what, I, don't, I may not believe what he or she says, but gosh, there's something different. They may think you're crazy, but they know that you live what you believe. And I believe the most powerful testimony and witness that we can have as believers, yes, it's the words out of our mouths but it's our character and who Jesus is molding us to be. This morning, as we have our time of response, we're going we're gonna to sing praise to God and, and we're going to worship Him. But I want you to examine your heart. Does your life reflect what you claim to believe? Are you following Jesus with all that you have? Are you engaging in those spiritual disciplines? Are you modeling sound doctrine? Parents, are you teaching your children to love Jesus? Grandparents, are you teaching your grandchildren to love Jesus? Does this church look like a place where a non-believer could come in and say, there's something about these people. I want some of that. If you need to do business with the Lord this morning, these benches are open. You can come and pray. If you want somebody to pray with you, I'm happy to pray with you as well. But let's just give this time to the Lord and worship Him. Father, God, I'll be the first to admit that I have fallen short. And that oftentimes my life does not model sound doctrine. God, I pray you'd break my heart. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew your mercies in me this morning. God, I, as a father and as a husband, as a business owner, as a preacher of your word, Lord, I pray that when people look at my life, that they would see Jesus. So God, forgive me of my sin. God, I repent this morning. God, may others in this room do the same. In Jesus' name. Amen.